0: Welcome to BerryCast, a podcast from Cloudberry Creative, exploring all things UX. I am Virginia Beata, your host. This season, we're starting a dialogue about the broken rung that women face on the corporate design ladder by listening to some of the talented women who are changing the industry. Today's guest is Amy Buckner Chaudhry, CEO and founder of AnswerLab, the largest independent user experience research firm in the United States. Amy, I want to thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm just super thrilled that CloudBerry is focusing on this particular topic. It's so important. And, you know, I find it particularly interesting for me and for my company to be involved in this conversation because we care so much about inclusivity. It's one of our core values at the company.
0: I love it. Well, then let's just jump right into it. AIGA and Google's design census revealed that only 11% of women hold leadership positions and make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men. Your story in particular is unique to BerryCast, both because your background and leadership focus on user experience research, and you are a member of an even smaller cross-section of women leaders, founders, and CEOs who have found success in this market.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. It's uh, it's certainly upsetting to hear about this percentage. It's so low. And, of course, um, thinking about how women are paid being not paid equal to men is just um, something I think in our organization we find completely uh, unconscionable.
0: What do you believe that the rest of the industry could do to improve the gender imbalance and wage disparity that we see in UX leadership? A lot.
1: (laughs) Well, I think we can really start by making the roles that we offer uh, in leadership positions compelling and fair. We do know that women carry the lion's share, of the housework, and uh, the child care in their homes on top of having jobs. If we want women to be successful in leadership roles, we need to make them as flexible as possible and make them as attractive as possible. And provide the right kind of coaching and support to help people feel like they can be successful in the role. So I think it's one thing. I think another thing we can do is think about how do we take our leadership roles and tailor them specifically to the skill sets and interests of the high-performing team members that we have. So rather than looking across the organization and saying, okay, I have these five manager roles and they all have to look exactly the same can I make 50% of these manager roles similar, but the other 50% play to the unique strengths of the individual so that they'll be able to thrive in that role and they'll be more interested in it. I think a third way I would really encourage the industry to think is about making compensation philosophies um, very fair and transparent, um, ensuring that leadership roles actually compensate at a level that's worth the extra responsibility that people are going to be taking on and the time commitment they're going to be offering. And by paying women based on their value to the organization and the experience they bring, not just based on what they ask for, Too often, I hear stories of organizations that want to pay the least amount that you hope the person is going to be willing to accept for the role. And that's not how we should be thinking about compensation for our people. It should be looking across the organization, looking at their skills and being fair. Um, You know, when women do negotiate, negotiating in a fair way back and encouraging them to do so. So those are a few things I would like the UX uh, industry to do in order to make it a more fair playing ground.
0: How is Answer Lab doing with gender balance in leadership positions?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, The majority of our leadership roles at Answer Lab are actually held by women. Now, we have some advantage in this area in that many women tend to be drawn to the field of UX research. So we have a very large pool of amazing talent to start with uh, at our company. But four out of six members of our executive team are women. And I think that really helps our team members and candidates who are interested in working at AnswerLab realize that our company is the kind of place that really values inclusivity and values different voices. And you know, I've also thought a lot about that phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And I believe pretty strongly that having women in leadership roles just begets having more women in leadership roles. If you can see that other women have made it there, it makes it be a place where you can envision yourself. And then, of course, women in leadership roles then advocate for other women to come along
0: behind them. I mean, you say that you know this is a, a core value of Answer Lab. Was it also a founding value? Has this been an emphasis of yours since the beginning? Has this always been important to you? I think it's always been important to me personally,
1: given kind of the experience of my life and and what I've gone through, but we didn't start putting it into writing as a core value actually into the last few years. In fact, we made uh, one of our core values to support and encourage inclusivity out of our eight core values, and we actually set last year as the business strategy of the company to support and encourage inclusivity within our company, within our research methods, and in how we advocate for inclusivity with our clients. If, you know, We really thought that the more we can focus on an inclusive approach, uh, it would not only help the world, but be a strategic business advantage.
0: I'm, I'm really loving everything that you're saying about inclusivity, uh, culture, core values, uh, being personally important. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that inclusive culture that you um, and the other leaders at AnswerLab have created. You know, how much of that was driven from your own personal you know perception of the industry? Um, you know, how much of it was from collaborative approach, and how has that impacted your uh, your employees um, and your your team at AnswerLab?
1: Yeah, well I think um you've we've heard a lot about this more recently, particularly with the pandemic, that we know women carry a very disproportionate burden of child care and housework on top of their jobs. And I think you probably read in the New York Times last week the piece where we were talking about how that burden is even worse now that we have children at home with their parents sheltering in place and many of the classwork happening at home, a lot of this burden is falling to women. So the way we think about it at Answer Lab before the pandemic and even more so now is that the best way we can support our employees is to offer as much flexibility as possible. So we've really valued this idea of letting people work where they, they can be as productive and uh, as engaged as possible. And that flexibility also extends to kind of one when, when of the times that you work, right? We don't want to be very uh, constrained around saying, oh, you have a start time here and an end time here. It's like you do your best work whenever it works for you so you can accommodate your family. And along those lines, we recognize that this is more important than ever, of course, with the pandemic. So about a month ago, we introduced a new benefit to, to our team members, what we call care time. And care time basically offers five hours of every week, to everyone in the company to block out their calendars for personal time that they can use for self-care or to care for a family member, really whatever they want at this time of need. And during those five hours, others in the organization cannot block your time or encroach on it. You know, We hold that time sacred because we know that people have a lot that they're juggling and we want to ensure that they can be successful in doing so. Also, several years ago, we started offering four months of parental leave. Um, That's kind of unheard of, I think, for a company uh, of our size. I mean, back then we were probably only about sixty employees then, Um, and I thought it was important for us to offer this as the right thing to do. But it became even more apparent to me how important this was when i heard someone on our team say that they always believed that maternity leave was the thing like if you were getting pregnant you wouldn't talk about it at work because you were afraid that you might lose your job but that what they learned at answer lab was that not only could you talk about it and it would be celebrated but when you come back from your maternity leave you could be promoted and that just seemed like well isn't that obvious isn't that how you would normally run a company and want to treat all of your individuals it was just that was the first time it became apparent to me that kind of how we approach things and thought about things was distinct and unique to us. And right now we're just, you know, thinking about how do we encourage everybody in the company, you know, to use their combination of PTO, their care time, uh, their family leave. I think what we're hearing a lot of is a belief of employees around the country that we're in this uncertain economic environment. We're in this time of this pandemic. Now we need to work as hard as possible so that we can secure our jobs. And the message I was just sharing with the company last Friday was What we need to be focused on right now as much as possible is protecting our immunity. You know, we want to make sure that everyone is healthy and safe and secure at this time. That doesn't mean doubling down and working 80-hour weeks. It means uh, taking care of yourself, stepping back, knowing when you've reached your limit, listening to your
0: body. You know, since you're talking about the pandemic, thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. You know, we're recording this episode right now during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and most of us have been sheltering in place now for for almost or over two months. Just a few days before the first shelter-in-place orders came down uh, in the United States, you had issued a call to all UX researchers to pledge to switch from in-person to remote me- research methodologies. Shortly after that, Answer Lab released a guide to remote research. Um, so you're looking out not just for your own employees, but also uh, for the, the users um, and your clients. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about those days between when you first learned of the threat of COVID-19 and when you issued that call to remote research. Yeah, um, it, was a,
1: it was a scary time um, because we've been watching this really closely since January, to be honest, wondering how much it would reach the U.S. and to what extent and had been thinking about what would our response be. When it came to a point, we realized we needed to get the policy out as fast as possible. We just happened to be at a a strategy offsite with the executive team. I basically took over our, you know, 2020 planning session and said, this whole day just needs to be about our pandemic response. We need to figure this out and get get, you know, communication out to our entire team by the end of the day. So, What we said was our North Star is we don't want to put a single person at risk through our business if we can avoid it. So we said how, you know, our our ideal scenario would be that we shift 100% of our business into being remote and we ask everybody to go work from home and not be in our labs. Now, this is a tall order because then we had to stop back and say, well, how much of our business is actually being done in a lab versus how much is being remote right now? Because we had no idea. So we went through a several-hour exercise to go categorize all of the projects that we were working on. We enlisted a lot of help throughout the company to understand the viability of turning all of the research to remote because there were some tricky methods that we were doing. And we came back and said, okay, I think we can do this, but 75% of our business, basically 90 projects, were all in person, so we need to make them remote. So we issued this call to the whole company called Stay Safe and save the 75% and let's shift to these 90 projects. And the entire company rose to the occasion and they did it in five business days and I could not believe it. <laughs> not yeah. only had they done this, but they, they built what they called uh, the ultimate guide to remote research, just to help all of our internal team members figure out how to navigate this, how to have conversations with clients, what methodologies, how are we gonna do participatory design? in a remote way? How are we going to do ethnography in a remote way um, now that this is the constraints? So I put out a Medium article um, asking everyone to join us and then we decided to share portions of our internal guide with everyone else to help make that that shift a lot easier. So it was a, a frenetic, fast-paced time and they pulled it off. They shifted all the projects. They saved the revenue. They, they, they kept everybody out of harm's way and it was just a thrilling, scary, but thrilling, thrilling thing to see. And I'm so proud of all of them looking back on it.
0: Like, how are you keeping your teams, um, you know, connected and informed, um, and even inspired? Communication
1: is the most important thing we could be doing. We need to communicate in a variety of lenses as much as possible, not only about, how we can support everyone during the pandemic, but how the business is doing financially, right? Like um, we're in a potentially a global depression, right? And people want to feel security around how the company is doing. So what we've done is provided every single Friday, we get 30 minutes um, on the phone with everyone in the company. And we walk through three key things. We talk about your health, So what are the things we're offering to help support your health? What are reminders? What are things we'd like to do to encourage your health? Talk about the health and safety of everyone. Uh, The second thing we talk about is the client health. You know, how are clients faring? What are some of the projects we're working on to support them right now? Um, How are they growing and how are they um, engaging with Answer Lab? And then lastly, we talk about business health, which is, What does the financial performance of the company look like? Um, Are we still growing, (laughs) which we are? Um, uh, How are we changing our policies in the face of the pandemic and in the face of what could be a a, a growing economic challenge externally? Um, And we are just as transparent about every single factor as we possibly can be with all of the reasoning that goes into our business decisions. And I think because we've had the tough, hard conversations with folks, um, they've been appreciative of that. Uh, so that's, that's one area we've really focused on. The other is how can we communicate just on a more regular basis? So we send out good news stories on Slack on Mondays. You know, what's been a, a really positive development in the company over the last week? And on Wednesdays, I send out a self-care message. What do I want to remind people to be sure and do or, or think about or um, consider to, to protect their own safety and that of their families?
0: Um, I love how you're offering that transparency um, to your employees. And on top of that, you're also walking the walk of applying research uh, to yourself and developing new tools to be able to uh, to support your, your employees. Um, it's... Thank you. We
1: tend to lend, lead right into uh, doing research whenever we can. <laughs> we might <don't> do as <laughs> much of it with, internally.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Um, if if you had any other advice that you could whisper into the ear of other CEOs right now around supporting and encouraging employees, what would that be?
1: I'd say to really lead with as much empathy and grace and understanding as you can. It is an impossible time to be a perfect parent, to be a perfect friend, to be a perfect caregiver or to be a, a perfect consultant to clients um, during such a complex time. So, um, the more as leaders we can offer flexibility and transparency and respond and adapt as fast as qu- possible to changing employing
0: needs, um, the better off we'll all be. I'd like to take a moment and step backwards, um, give a chance for our listeners to learn a little bit more about you and how a slightly rebellious streak and the Japanese language led you from a childhood in Tennessee to being named one of Fortune's most promising women entrepreneurs. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I, I grew up in the South and uh, after high school, I went to college at Vanderbilt and I, I didn't want to take all of the classes that other people took in terms of languages. So I thought, well, I'm going to take the thing that's most unique to someone like me, uh, which would be learning to speak and write Japanese. And so I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the language. I fell in love with culture. Uh, I found a lot of similarities, actually, between Southern culture and Japanese culture in terms of how you uh, think about creating an experience for your guests, (laughs) how how you treat those um, who... Uh, you want to just offer, you know, this hospitality uh, and grace in your communications with them and in your hosting. And I loved that about Japan. So I I did a summer abroad there, and then I went to live in Japan for three years and work there for three years after college. And it was
0: one of the most transformative experiences of my life. I mean, that hospitality, grace, experiences seems like that's a very clear segue. <laughs> Um, from that into user experience research um, seems you know, clear at one level, but how about you tell us a little bit more about how you found user experience design? Sure. So um, when I moved back from Japan
1: to the U.S., I worked at a startup. It's kind of my first job here in the U.S., where I would call myself the Jane of all trades. <laughs> so I'd kind mm-hmm. of jump in and help with anything. One of one of the things was just sit on the leadership team's calls and make Gantt Gant charts for everything that they had um, promised they would do for the next executive meeting. Now, this was 1998, 1999, back before the term user experience was really used very often. And I thought, you know, here everyone's arguing what's in the best of en- interest of engineering product, marketing, but there's no one sitting here advocating for what is the user need in this experience. And I found myself really drawn to this idea of being an advocate for the user. So um, I brought in a startup uh, to do this incredible benchmarking study on our site. And it was so incredible. It was this research study with a hundred people, And they all went and tried tasks on the site and talked about their experience. And I fell in love with the methodology. I fell in love with the idea that you could use real data to influence how decisions were made. And so I I went to work for that startup. It was called Vividence. It got acquired by Keynote, but a good way for UXers now to think about it it was kind of like the first uh, user Zoom-type platform before user Zoom came along. But I loved everything about it and worked there for about four years and then started AnswerLab afterwards. So I found myself always wanting to be kind of a voice for the user since since those early days.
0: And from those early days, um, we have uh, early days – and then suddenly you are this, uh, you know, one of fortune's most promising women entrepreneurs having your own extremely successful company in this space. Um, you know, what, what, you know, what was that thread? What were the people or resources, um, that helped you or that didn't help you along the way? Ah, so that's an interesting question. So, uh,
1: I think that most, um, people who build a firm like we have maybe lean into specializing in being the expert in their space. You know, maybe they've written a book in their space or um, they've coined a unique methodology. Um, But I've always been really interested in being uh, the entrepreneur and the CEO who has a passion for user research and, but who has a team of real incredible experts who, who work alongside me. Uh, and so the, the kinds of uh, support systems I looked to were more CEO-type uh, support systems. So early on, uh, I applied for and was selected as the Ernst & Young Winning Women, and so I, I leveraged all of the EY tools they had available to us to help figure out how to scale the business. Uh, Then I started uh, joining Vistage, which is a CEO group, peer CEO group. Uh, Then I now I'm in YPO, which is the Young Presidents Organization. It's a a national group, sorry, an international group of uh, uh, individuals who run businesses over a certain size, but who are under the age 50. So I guess uh, I'm a little unique in that I was never trying to be, make myself uh, the brand. I wanted to build a company that was the
0: brand. So what advice would you give to other women or gender non-binary folks who um, wanted to possibly follow your path um, you know, to be that kind, that kind of a leader?
1: Well, I'd say uh, the most important thing would be figuring out very early how to influence others and how to make a name for yourself within your organization by being able to um, lead others through a a very big engagement or to solve a, a very complex problem. And so that leads to, you know, how can you build influencing skills and how do you look for uh, having the ability to develop great relationships with others and how do you always lead from a standpoint of empathy and understanding where people are coming from Um, and can you hone your presentation skills (laughs) because that's another form of influencing. So I think those are the areas where I'd like to encourage others in UX to really focus. Um, It's not always the place you think to go first, right? You think, oh, I need to hone my craft. I need to be a great designer. I need to be a great researcher. But I think what allows uh, people to rise up to be leaders is how they lead and how they influence others.
0: Thank you, Amy. You just wrote my segue for me. (laughs) Um, um, Normally at this point in the interview, I would ask our guests about their definition of success and talk about that a little bit. But when I was preparing for this interview, Um, I watched a presentation that you gave um, that was about this exact topic. In the presentation, you highlight five strategies that UX teams could use to increase their influence within organizations. Um, And I think that those five strategies could be excellent strategies for women and gender non-binary individuals to take when they're looking to thrive in UX and design leadership. And clearly you feel the same way. (laughs) Um, And so uh, first, I, I want to ask about one of the strategies, which was to create emotional journeys. Um, could you briefly explain that strategy?
1: Sure. So when I talked with UX leaders over time, I found that sometimes when they've had their most successful moments of influence in their organizations, it came from what they only could look kind of look back on and realize, oh, I just took this group through a journey over different points in time. I wasn't trying to take them on a journey to begin with, but that's actually what this ended up being. And um, the key thing behind taking someone on emotional journey is the idea that you meet people where they are, not where you want them to be. And so that's why I think this particular strategy for influencing is so important because Within an organization, people are at different stages. And if you start right where you are, you meet them where you are at that moment, they
0: often cannot hear the message you want to convey. Do you think that there is a way to uh, identify or name the stage that we're in right now um, in the emotional journey of gender imbalance in UX and design leadership? I wish that I could. Um, But I can't because I think it's
1: a very specific thing based on the individual. You know, organizations are are made up of people Mm -hmm. and the leaders within that organization are all at different stages in their journey um, with most things in life and in particular, um, really uh, getting at gender parity. So I think it's important to craft your message and use your influencing skills to meet people where they individually are in their journey or where small groups are in their journey. that that needs to be very specific to them.
0: Well, Amy, I'd like to thank you for sharing all of this with us today. What you've done in, in forming AnswerLab and growing it to where it is remarkable and the changes that AnswerLab has made during this pandemic are truly commendable. Um, so thank you for all of that. And thank you for for talking to me. But before I let you go, um, <laughs> I want to ask you a question that we are asking all of our Barry cast guests. So Amy, if you could take anything back to the drawing board for a complete user-centric overhaul, what would it be? Well, I have a deep topic, but I'll be brief on it, which is that I wish we had
1: a complete overhaul of our political, educational, and American values to be systems that are based on empathy, authenticity, and transparency. And I think if those were built into how we work and engage with one another today, the vast majority of our problems that we currently face would be eliminated.
0: Well, I certainly have nothing to add to that. That's, <laughs> I, I would be completely in on that if we can ever actually get that started. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one relationship yeah. at a time. <laughs> Amy, just like to thank you so much for joining us today on Berrycast. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.